come on a journey with a cinephile. everybody to episode number 34 of journey with a cinephile a horror movie podcast as always your tour guide david garrett jr here and on this very short and quick episode i decided to throw some things together and watched from 2020 the bone box and then to continue on with journey through the aughts as this is number nine for that the 1940s film is going to be the mummy's hand and then i only have one mini review and that's going to be for session nine as I keep up with the People's Council responsibilities that I took on for the Summer Challenge series for the 2000s over on the podcast Under the Stairs. But what I'm also going to do is I'll give you a quick briefing here is that since I am leaving for vacation to go to Las Vegas tomorrow morning, what I'm going to do is I have a couple movies downloaded on my phone that I'm going to watch and they're gonna end up being featured on episode number 35. So that's kind of how I'm going to, I'm still gonna keep watching stuff, but because I don't have a lot of time to throw everything together when I get home on Sunday, I wanted to make sure that I had this shorter episode ready to go to continue on with my streak. And then I will have a little bit probably longer episode for next week. But what I'm gonna go ahead and do first is kick you over to a musical break before I get into the review for session nine.
of riches rots in the ground. Jeff is my business, your business is good. Dale's a great robber and lies, ripping lies from all around. Jeff's a great go to rest in peace. The problem to be made from the reason to For my first film for this week, it is going to be Session 9 from 2001. This is directed by Brad Anderson, who also co-wrote this with Stephen Gevedon. This stars David Caruso, Stephen Gevedon, and Paul Guilfoyle. This is a horror mystery film from the United States. It is currently sitting on a 6.4 on IMDb and a 3.2 on Letterboxd, with the synopsis being... Tensions rise with an a asbestos cleaning crew as they work in an abandoned mental hospital with a horrific past that seems to be coming back. Now, this is a movie that I heard a lot about when I first got into podcasts, but until now had not gotten around to seeing it. The, this movie came out when I was still in high school, and it really wasn't until college that I heard about it. Now, this is one of those ones that had been sitting on my Netflix list for the DVDs in the mail for almost a decade before I finally got around to checking it out. Even though I'd heard about it, it wasn't until the Podcast Under the Stairs Summer Challenge series for the 2000s. So I have to thank Duncan once again, as this is one of the films from my year of 2001 that I'm going to be watching all the films that made that list. Now, just to give a little bit of background story here, though, is that we have a guy who is Gordon Fleming, who is portrayed by Peter Mullen, and he has his own company along with Phil, who is Caruso. Now, they're met at a gate by a security guard, and they are trying to bid on a job to clean the asbestos out of an old mental hospital. And in this case, it is the Danvers Mental Hospital is the one that's supposed to be just in Massachusetts, which I'm assuming is a pretty famous one. I don't know a whole lot about it, but I've seen some things that that's where they are at. And they get taken around by a guy who is Bill Griggs, and that is Guilfoyle. And what they're doing is trying to clean this place up so it can be renovated now at first phil is stating that it's going to take minimum of two to three weeks to do this job and then gordon decides that he can do it in two and then when he gets outside with bill he convinces them that they can do it in one week as long as they don't go to the bidding process and we learn that the reason behind this is that he's pretty stressed out as he and his wife have a new baby and he is on the verge of losing his company so he's really just stressed out trying to make sure that he can get everything to work and they do end up getting the job and the rest of their crew is mike who is gavadon as well as hank who is josh lucas and they hired on gordon's nephew who is jeff portrayed by brendan sexton the third and they go about trying to get this place renovated. But this is pretty interesting here, though, because the fact is they're playing up the fact that I believe in the Reagan era, they cut all the funding to mental hospitals. That's part of the reason that this one closed down. But Mike alludes to a story about a patient of Mary Hobbs who they thought was had some repressed memories and was trying to do some therapy to unleash those. And it turns out that... She has these cuts on her chest, and they get out of her that she was raped by her father as part of a satanic ritual. But then there's some things that end up turning out that that might not actually be the case, so there was a lawsuit. But while they're cleaning is Mike discovers some tapes that give him some more of the background information on this case. And she might have actually had 
multiple personalities, and it, I will say it's quite creepy. And a lot of what's done there is great in the sound design, is that they're able to distort it, and a lot of that is being on tape that it is old, so that those sounds are coming off of the deterioration of the tape. And I thought that really worked well. And they're also playing with the fact is, is there a supernatural angle here? Or is this just these guys are stressed out trying to get this job done and that there could be a, you know, reasonable explanation to everything as well, which I thought was kind of a cool way to play this. This does have a really low budget feel to it, which it didn't really bother me necessarily, but I know Jamie had pointed it out because we watched this one together. Going from there as well, not all the acting was great. I thought Caruso kind of overacts a few times. Everybody else seemed to be fine. And I did like to see that we had a cameo by Larry Fessenden as I know he's just a horror legend and I've seen some of his films. So it's kind of fun to see that he was in this film. But I will say this one was pretty creepy. It had me hooked from the get-go. And I, my old adage that I've picked up from other podcasters is that the first 90 minutes are free. This one runs 10 minutes over that. I definitely think it's warranted though. As this is a film that I'm glad I finally checked out as, like I said, pretty creepy one. And it is well worth the viewing. And I had to come in after this initial viewing for this one as an 8.5 out of 10. And since I had some stuff going on and was unable, as I said, to watch anything else for this episode, what I'm going to go ahead and do is get you over to the trailer for my first featured review. I can't believe you actually did it. You know, it is eerie conspiring with the Undertaker's daughter. So then what made you decide? Remember the guy I was telling you about, Benji? Now you brought this on yourself, so I'm going to need my money. Today. Sheriff, this is my nephew, Thomas. A few neighbors reported some strange activity at the cemetery last night. Probably just some kids messing around. Who's this? This is my wife. What happened? Cancer. I hear her Feels like someone's messing with me. What if someone knows? Just when I convince myself that I imagine that something else happens. These two worlds over there, it's not accident. You read those files, but now your mind is filling it in. I took from them. You know, they followed me here. Look around you. He's getting closer. There's no one here. <laughs> I always say it's better to light a candle than to sit in the dark. It's sick what you did. For the first featured review on this episode is going to be The Bone Box from 2020. This is written and directed by Luke Genton. It stars Gareth Corzine, Michelle Kierzrek, and Maria Olsen. This is a drama horror thriller from the United States. 
It is currently sitting on a 4.8 on IMDb and a 2.9 on Letterboxd, with the synopsis being, a grave robber comes to believe he's being haunted by those he stole from. Now, this is a movie that I heard nothing about. I was in a bit of a time pinch with, you know, going on vacation here shortly, and I wanted to, you know, keep up with this 2020 horror releases for not only my podcast, but just for my, you know, year-end list. So I decided when I got onto Shudder, this one was on there. I saw it was a 2020 release, decided I would go ahead and give it a viewing. And it's kind of interesting that it does pair up nicely the same week that I saw The Mummy's Hand because they share a similar plot device of grave robbing. Now, we start this with an interesting long shot of Tom, who is Corzine, who is traversing through a graveyard. He has a lantern, but aside from that, it is pitch black out around him. Now, we do get some tension here as he tries to avoid being seen by cars, hiding behind like tombstones and trees and stuff, and one of which that's even the most tense would be a police car pulls up I do have a slight issue with this scene though because of the fact that he's literally just standing behind a tree with a lantern and the, the car lights are literally on him and I would assume that something would be seen there. I'm not going to harp on it too much. It's a mild thing there, but I did notice that. And I guess there is, you know, plausible that they wouldn't notice it because their lights, they would assume is probably making the same, you know, light moving around and filtering around the tree and everything. But he does make it back to the house where he sneaks in and goes up to a room. It is there that he relaxes a bit and turns on the light and puts a bunch of his items in a box that he has and then goes to take a shower and we do something I will bring up later on as well but we get some interesting depth perception shots here as we can see he left his door open we see something move in his room across the hall or at least we think we do he then hears a noise while he's in the shower and goes to investigate but it turns out to be his friend who is Elodie who is Kirizik and this is an interesting part to the story as she works for a mortuary with her father and she stole some files. Now she gave them over to Tom, who is our main character, of course, and he's had has them and used them to rob their graves, which one of them includes his uncle. Now the box that I was referring to is Elodie takes it and refers to it as what they call a bone box, where I guess morticians used to have a box like this where they would keep items while working on somebody. And that is what she is referring to this box as he is keeping items of the people that he robbed from their graves. Now, we should also note that we learn later that she's going through a divorce and needs money, which is why she gave the files to him. But we see that she's a little bit hesitant the more that they talk and the more that things go on. And she's kind of shocked that Tom actually went through with it. Now, he does try to sneak her out. And then as well as go to look to see if he can find where his cell phone is because he doesn't have it. But his Aunt Florence, who is Olsen, asks him to come into her room and it is there that she notices Elodie trying to sneak out as well and she warns him about him after she leaves that he shouldn't be getting involved with her especially with his own issues and he convinces her that's not what she thinks and then he also tries to get some sleep there's a little bit of stuff that I'm leaving out but I will circle back to it as well and then through a dream we get to see that Tom was married to a woman named Claire who is portrayed by Tess Bellamo and as time goes on it is revealed that she died of cancer and he's having a nice dream here in the initial one and a bell wakes him up he doesn't find anyone in his room or anything that would be causing the sound until he looks under the bed and there is a bell that would go on a bike this isn't where the odd things stop though there's a painting downstairs that there's a black figure on it that he never noticed earlier and he keeps getting weird calls at the house from his cell phone, but whoever has it won't say anything and they're just kind of making creepy sounds. And now the question ends up becoming is he believes he's cursed 
and he thinks he's also being followed by the spirits of the items that he stole but is that what is really happening here or is it the stress of his plate getting to him now that's where i'm going to leave my recap because to be honest there isn't a whole lot to this story which kind of bummed me out if i'm going to be honest and there's a decent setup that we get here that had me intrigued when i saw the title i didn't know what it meant and i like the reveal of this box that the morticians use you know very early on and it that's part of what hooked me you know because of course he has his own box that he's using to keep these stolen items in now the movie does well in slowly introducing us to Tom as well as the other characters around him and fleshing everything out. What is interesting though is that not everything we learn about him is good and I like that we get things in doses where you start to feel sorry for him and then you learn something crappy about him so it kind of creates a flawed character as our hero here but I wouldn't necessarily call him a hero though either which is what I'm getting at. Now I unfortunately as I said think this is a bit generic and I wouldn't be shocked though to see if this director, this is his featured film debut, or if he was at least a, a former cinematographer or both. I say this because there is a lot of care into how this movie is shot and I was really impressed by it. And I think it's one of the best aspects that we get here. I've already kind of brought this up, but they use the depth of the field very well, where we'll see characters in the foreground and then there's things in the background that a lot of times it's just us viewers can see, which I know some people don't care about. I personally am creeped out by it because I have this phobia that there are things that are happening behind me that I don't notice and it kind of freaks me out. So this movie does well in that. But we also get quite a few of these where like a TV will get turned off and then he'll the person will notice something behind them. And I even like that the quote ghost unquote that we are seeing are some of the things that are happening this way. Sometimes it's just characters there. I do think they go to this well a little bit too much. And I mean, somewhat as well is a little bit cliched. And the characters themselves are as well, which, you know, is fine. Because I've kind of jumped around a bit. But to get back to the story, I've already said what I thought of the ghosts. I like their look, but I do feel like their characters are... Are, are cliched in this way. I do like that this movie though is grounded where it could be a logical explanation or a supernatural one. Tom is stressed as he owes money to a bad guy and he hasn't gotten any sleep. He's drinking as well as dealing with the grief over his deceased wife. I don't feel like he's fully over that now. And then he's also now sad about his uncle and what him passing away and what it's doing to his aunt. But the problem I have here is that it's revealed that he really didn't know his uncle all that well though. So I don't really necessarily know why that would bother him unless he's just sad because his aunt is sad. Now, my problem also is that this becomes a movie about Tom needing money due to a gambling problem. It just feels basic and not really what I kind of wanted this movie to go. And it didn't add a whole lot to me. The characters are also back and forth on their thoughts of what they should do about things. And the story just kind of lost me, which is crazy, is because it runs less than 90 minutes. And it just, by, I would say, the like last quarter of it, I was really just kind of checked out and just wanting it to kind of end, which... I feel bad about saying, but it is what it is. Now, something I should point out, though, is the acting isn't that bad. I thought Corzine was fine as the lead, as was Kruziak as, like, his counterpart. Even though there's not really anything necessarily romantic there, but she really is concerned about helping him. And I think part of that is she feels grief about introducing these ideas to him and whatnot. And then there's an actor of Aaron Schwartz who overacted, in my opinion, in his role of Benji. And he really doesn't need to be in this story, if I'm going to be honest. There were other things that I could have done to drive the emotional impact for me, if I'm going to be honest, that I think would have worked better. The best performance in this movie, though, for me is Olsen. For whatever reason, she puts me at ease. And I just felt the grief of her losing her husband and just how much she really wants to help Corzine, even though, like, 
She's also dealing with grief and just really is a good person. Aside from that, we have David Chokichi and Jamie Bernadette were solid in their cameos as police officers, as well as I thought Art Roberts, Maximus Birchmore, Cynthia Bravo, and Bellamo as the ghosts that may or may not be haunting Tom as well. Aside from that, I would have to go to the effects. I've already kind of talked about, I like the look of the ghosts that we got, and I thought the movie was shot very well. We also get some wounds when Tom is getting hit, and those look good, and I thought the blood has a really good color and consistency. Now, with that said, I feel this movie does do some good things, but there are just some issues with others. There's an interesting setup here, but the movie just loses its way and focuses on things that I really didn't care about in a movie like this. And not to beat a dead horse, six shots extremely well. The effects and look of the characters are good, the acting is above average for the most part, and the soundtrack worked for what was needed. This movie is just average in my opinion though. I'm kind of indifferent to it, which is not very good for the movie unfortunately. I just don't think the good or the bad really outweigh each other, and I just kind of by the end of it was like, okay, it's a movie, I saw it, time to move on, and I probably won't really think about any of this, you know, kind of going forward. And I'm not really seeing any trivia or anything like that. So my rating here was a 5 out of 10, as I was saying, just, you know, right there in the middle with everything. Not really anything else I really want to go over, and I don't really need a spoiler section. So what I'm going to go ahead and do is get you over to the trailer for my second featured review. If I say I think you're a swell person. Hmm? You're very beautiful. So beautiful, I'm going to make you immortal. Hey, where's the girl? Well, you'll never see her again. I'll give you three to tell me where she is. I'm not kidding. If you were to kill me, you're leaving at large a monster that only I can control. For my second featured review on this episode is going to be The Mummy's Hand from 1940. This was directed by Christy Cabani. This comes from a story by Griffin J, who co-wrote the screenplay with Maxwell Shane. And then uncredited is the 1932 screenplay from John L. Balderston. The treatment contributor from back then was Ben Pivar. And then there was the screen story was written by Nina Wilcox Putnam and Richard Shaher. This stars Dick Foran, Peggy Morin, and Wallace Ford. This is an adventure fantasy horror film from the United States. It is currently sitting on a 6.1 on IMDb and a 2.8 on Letterboxd, with the synopsis being 
An ancient mummy is revived to destroy the invaders of the 3,000-year-old tomb of an Egyptian princess. Now, I'll be honest, I'm pretty new to these mummy films from the Universal era. I don't think I've seen any of them aside from Abbott and Costello meets the mummy, which I did give a, which I did get a bit of a vibe here for this one. And I was shocked to see this actually isn't a sequel technically. It is more of a remake of the mummy from 1932, which at the time of writing this, I still haven't seen this. Now I jumped into this one due to it coming out in 1940 here for these Journey Through the Ot segments here on Journey Through with a Cinephile. Now we start this off with a man that's on a train. We later learn that his name is Professor Endohob and he is portrayed by George Zuko. Now he goes to meet his father who is the high priest of Karnak and that he is played by Eduardo Sinelli to which he turns over this position to make his son the high priest as he is dying and can no longer perform his duties. And it is here that we get with a flashback to the original Mummy film, where we learn that there was the history of Princess Anaka, who is Zeta Johan in that old footage, and how she died and her lover Karis, who in the old footage is Boris Karloff, tried to bring her back to life with Tanta leaves. Now these are the key to immortality. Karis was then punished with mummification while still alive and is doomed to live forever, needing a broth from the Tanta leaves every cycle of the full moon. And this is where the high priest is the one that has to create this broth for him to drink in order to keep him alive. But we do learn here as well that if they give too much, he becomes an unstoppable beast that will just wreak havoc on the world if it is, you know, getting to that point. Then the movie shifts us over to a bazaar where Steve Banning, who is foreign, is with his friend Babe Jensen, who is Ford. Steve is an archaeologist. They're both archaeologists, but Steve is a much more prominent one, and he's out of work currently. And he discovers a broken vase that seems to reveal information as to where Princess Anaka's tomb is. They're out of money and need to return to the United States, but Steve convinces Babe to give him some of his emergency money that he keeps in his boot to purchase this vase. He does and then takes it to Dr. Petrie, who is Charles Trowbridge, who believes that he's onto something here. They take it into Andoheb, who disagrees and breaks it. Now, he claims to do this by accident, but we see that after these guys all leave that he has an ulterior motive. But Steve won't take no for an answer, though. So Dr. Petrie and Babe agree with him, and they're going to try to find independent funding for this expedition which we do get a pretty funny scene where he gets a telegram from i believe it's the brooklyn museum of history telling him that they have a job if he comes back to the united states as a bone washer but outside of that they don't believe that he's on to anything then this brings them to a bar where they end up encountering a mr slovani who is cecil calloway he's a famous magician that is heading back to the states with his daughter but steve and babe convince him to fund their expedition making him a partner so they will split everything amongst them like all of the spoils and the money that is made from it. And there's actually an interesting scene where Babe and him go back and forth with magic tricks, and then it's then revealed that Babe is obviously a amateur compared to what Mr. Slovani can do, but they end up kind of having a bond because they're both from New York City. And Doheb has a spy, though, in the form of a beggar who is Sig Arno. And we get to first see him in the bazaar, and he's been feeding information back to his boss. And it also appears that this beggar is also one of the lower priests of Karnak. And then Andohib goes to Mr. Slovani's daughter, who is Marta, portrayed by Moran, who 
is going to prevent them for searching for the tomb. She fails, though, when she goes to get the money back when her father gets back to their hotel room. And Steve kind of sweet talks her into what they're doing and proves to her that he's actually a pretty good guy and that they're not there just to swindle them. So the four of them are going to head into the desert with a crew to look for this tomb. But then we see that there are some, you know, quote, accidents, unquote, that delay their dig. And they also find a former archaeologist along with his wife buried under the sand. It makes you wonder if, you know, something happened here or did his workers just bury him as a way of making sure that, you know, his body wasn't left out for animals. We don't know at this time, but as things go on, we see that there is more to this. But these things start to freak out the workers, but not our heroes. And Doheb is also there because around the other side of the mountain is where the actual tomb is. And the beggar is there helping him with these different things. But there's another part to all this. If Karis, who is portrayed by Tom Tyler, is given too much of that liquid, like I said, he becomes uncontrollable. But Andohib can control him and is using him to get rid of these people that are trying to raid the tomb of the princess. Now that's where I'm going to leave my recap at the moment, as I don't want to necessarily spoil anything, as there's not a whole lot to this movie, so there won't be a spoiler section here. But I want to pick up where I found, you know, this is some interesting stuff in this movie, and there's some intriguing little aspects here, looking at it in eyes from 2020. Now, at the time of recording this, there are protests that are speaking out against white supremacy, and this movie is in that way problematic for a couple different reasons. The first involves in the story in that Andohib is tasked with protecting Princess Anaka's tomb. Now I love Egyptian history but the more I've learned about it is we would go over there and in the name of archaeology and trying to preserve these artifacts and steal them from their native country and not really give them any sort of compensation for it. Now Andohib is protecting her tomb from being looted and brought back to the United States and put on display like I was saying. There were some major issues with things being taken and sold as they're technically grave robbers. From that point of view, I agree that with Andohib in trying to keep them from, you know, getting into this tomb and hiding it. It's just problematic that he shouldn't be murdering to do so. Now, the mummy Karis doing what he is is fine for me as he is cursed for all eternity to protect his love. Now, Andohib is using Karis to hunt these down these people down that are trying to discover the tomb doesn't make it right though. He also snaps a bit to become your typical villain for the era and I was surprised to see some characters were murdered in this movie. Now I'm in the middle of what I kind of feel here is that I don't blame the mummy for doing what it's doing but I do believe that the characters themselves and their motivations are problematic. The other issue I have is that the actors playing these characters who are supposed to be Middle Eastern are not. Sinelli is from Italy, Zuko is from Manchester in the United Kingdom, Tyler is from the United States, Arno is from Germany, and I can go on and on how none of these people are actually from the country they're supposed to be portraying. I will say I can't harp too much as I've done in the past because I know the history of cinema. There weren't a lot of actors in Hollywood at the time to match the race of these characters. I will give some credit as they at least selected people of darker complexion instead of just putting people in, you know, blackface or brown face in this time. Now, I know they kind of do that with Tyler, but he's a monster, so I can be forgiving there as, you know, he's not alive anymore. So it's that's just, you know, splitting hairs there. And then speaking of these roles, I did think the acting was fine. Foran is your typical hero that you get in these type of movies from the era. He isn't great, but he fits the role with his look. Moran really doesn't have much of a role in the way of this movie and she does come off strong at first and I'm all about that but then she fades into becoming the damsel in distress which is a shame because how she enters this movie with a bang 
as she goes to hold up the men with a fake gun. Ford brings some comic relief along with Calloway. I didn't necessarily enjoy the magician angle as I don't think it personally necessarily added anything to the movie. Zuko is good as the villain here. Aside from him becoming the cliche diabolical character, these type of movies tended to have in the era where he's just doing things that I kind of question the motivation for. Uh, Tyler has good size for the role of the mummy, which I did find it interesting to find out that he was a world champion power lifter, which does make sense with, you know, taking on this role. And I thought the rest of the cast were fine aside from my problems above. The last thing that I really wanted to go over would be the effects. Being that this is early Universal, we don't get a lot of them. The makeup for the mummy was good. I did think that worked for me. They did well in their set pieces as well to make it look like we're in Egypt and not on like a soundstage. They kept it simple, which I think really does help. Uh, the cinematography was fine in my opinion. Now with that said, this movie is okay. It is problematic in who we look at as the heroes and who we look at as the villains. At the time this came out, not so much, but looking at it with, you know, eyes today. The casting is fine aside from the issues I've laid out above. The look of the mummy was good in my opinion, and the movie has a crisp runtime of 67 minutes. I will admit that I did want a bit more from some of the characters as they're not necessarily fleshed out. Aside from that, the soundtrack fit for what was needed, doesn't necessarily add a whole lot in my opinion. And I would say this is just over average and just lacking some of the elements to, you know, be really good. So I came in here with a 6 out of 10. And then before I close this out, I just have some trivia that I wanted to share, which is to make the mummy look more frightening, Tyler's eyes and the inside of his mouth were blackened out by frame by frame in almost all of the close-ups, which does make it look really good. I will admit that. So I saw some of the close-ups. I was pretty impressed. Uh, the large tomb set was originally built for Universal's Green Hell and appeared in many of their other features. For the scenes in which the mummy, for close-ups and medium shots, there was Jack P. Pierce's painstaking makeup technique of gluing strips of cotton to Tyler's face to create deep wrinkles were used, but in long shots they used you know, time-saving with a comfortable rubber mask. The excavation scenes were shot on the Universal's back lot in a rocky and desert-like section of the natural hills known as Gossman's Glutch, named after Russell A. Gossman, who was a set director on this film and many of Universal's other horror movies. To give the Gulch a more canyon-like and wild appearance, it is augmented with artificial rock faces and boulders. This film takes place in May of 1940. There's an abbreviated comic book version that was contained in the January 1965 edition of Monster World 2. Several shots and sequences in this movie include the scenes where Karis is punished by being alive, are lifted directly from the original 1932 version of The Mummy, and the philosophy for the studio was why reshoot and restage when you've already got it in the can. Dick Foran's character here is an adventurous archaeologist fascinated with ancient artifacts, served as a partial inspiration of the later creation of Indiana Jones. Shooting began in late May-June, and this was released in September, so pretty quick turnaround. In all four Karis movies, the mummy has a disfigured and presumably useless right arm. Tyler's right arm is bent out at the elbow with his hand on his chest, and Cheney's hand and arm are tied against his. However, both are quick to bring the arm out to full use when picking up the heroine in each movie. It makes sense, though, as both Tyler and Cheney were right-handed, and both used their weaker hands to strangle the victims. Not a stretch if you consider that Tyler was a powerlifting champion, like I said earlier, before he became an actor. The contract signed by the magician Slovani in the bar of the Cairo Hotel is clearly dated for May 12th of 1940. 
and this is part of the original Shock Theater package of 52 Universal titles released to television in 1957, followed a year later with The Son of Shock, which added 20 more features. And that's all I really wanted to kind of delve into here. What I'm going to go ahead and do now, though, is get you to one last musical break before I close out the show. You ought to see what they did to my mummy. Organs out of his tummy, put him in spice, whacked him in a jar, painted him up with sticky tar, wrapped him in linen from his head to his toes, pulled his brains out of his nose. That's not all the embalmers did. They buried my mummy in a pyramid. Ancient Egypt down by the Nile. Mummy's gonna be in a tomb for a while. Fair go, Pharaoh, it's not funny. Tell King Tut I want my mummy. Mummy's in a coffin of shining gold. Lying in a tomb that's dark and cold. He'll never see Cause he's half the mummy he used to be Dead as a doornail, blind as a bat With a mummified dog and a mummified cat Don't ask me what my daddy thinks Cause his chariot's parked at the local Sphinx Ancient Egypt down by the Nile Mummy's gonna be in a tomb for a while Figo, Pharaoh, it's not funny Till King Tut, I want my mummy Some fellas with spades and a torch to see Were doing some archaeology They saw a glimmer, they dug some more Couldn't believe the things they saw Ancient paintings, priceless jewels They gave a shout and dropped their tools But the greatest treasure they found by far Was a wrinkly mummy with his guts in a jar Ancient Egypt down by the Nile Mummy's gonna be in a tomb for a while Figo, Pharaoh, it's not funny Tell King Tut I want my mummy Ancient Egypt down by the Nile Mummy's gonna be in a tomb for a while Figo, Pharaoh, it's not funny Tell King Tut I want my mummy Tell King Tut I want my mummy Tell King Tut I want my mummy I want to thank you all for listening to episode 34 of Journey with a Cinephile, a horror movie podcast. Just to close the show out, if you'd like to send me an email, you can do so at journeywithacinephile at gmail.com. If you want to read any of the reviews on this episode or any of my past episodes, you can do that at Reviews of the Dead, which is horrorreview.webnode.com. And if you would like to get in touch with me and add me on Facebook, you can at David Michigan Garrett Jr. Twitter, I'm Buckeye from Mish. Letterboxd, I'm David OSU. Instagram, I'm David OSU87. And I will have the links to all of that in the show notes. And if you want to download the FlickChat app where you can communicate with me on there, that is downloadable on iOS or Android. And my join code is Journey with a Cinephile. And if I could also ask you, if you could subscribe to 
this show on whatever podcatcher that you are using, that would be greatly appreciated. And if you can also rate and review on there, I would greatly appreciate having some sort of feedback or anything like that. Just so I can make the show the best product that I can do. And now for episode 35, I've already kind of touched on is it's probably going to end up being a little bit longer possibly as I'm going to watch a couple films on the flight there and back for my trip. And I will also have a full week to kind of watch everything as I will be back on Sunday and everything like that. I've got a few movies I'm trying to decide between what are the 2020 releases going to be for the featured review as well as what I'm going to do for the 1940s film as number episode 35 is going to be Journey Through the Odds number 10. So I will get that all sorted out by the time that episode drops. And once again, I want to thank you for listening and coming on this journey with me. Whatever you do today, I hope you have a great time doing it and be safe as well. This is your tour guide, David Garrett Jr. signing off.